This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship innovation as well as product design. I'm joined now on the line by Chris Williams, who's the founder and CEO of Pocket.Watch. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Carl. All right. So I want to, I'm going to point our listeners to your URL and in part because it's an interesting domain and uh, and we'll circle back on that in a minute but the the domain is the website is pocket dot watch so no com no net the so-called top-level domain is watch so pocket dot watch just type that in browser if you want if you're someplace safe and want to check out the website all right Chris give us the elevator pitch for pocket watch Sure. Very, very simply, we are a branded kids studio, a new one, and, and we celebrate the new digital stars and formats that kids are really passionate about today, and we bring them to kids everywhere they, they are, essentially. And this was uh, something that the traditional sort of incumbent kids media brands uh, weren't, weren't doing, and they kind of missed, and uh, we saw a great opportunity there. Okay, so... Uh, uh... Probably fewer than a, than one in a thousand of our listeners are kids, and so explain to us uh, what what you mean by by the the, the new channels, the new uh, venues where kids are hanging out. Sure. Well, I um, noticed as a father, <laughs> primarily at first, that. Uh, uh, my kids were uh, consuming media in a drastically different way than I did. I would come home from work and, uh, you know, plop on the couch to flip on my big screen, beautiful big screen TV, and there they were, you know, laying on the carpet watching their iPhones. And fortunately for me, I had spent a great deal of time at the um, – I sold a couple companies to the Walt Disney Company, uh, and I was at a company called Maker Studios where I was overseeing a large network of – uh, creators around the world on YouTube. And I really got to see my gut instinct play out in the data. I really got to watch the linear television audience for kids really fall off a cliff in terms mm -hmm. of audience. And it corresponded with a massive surge in kids' audience on YouTube. And what mm -hmm. was happening there were these new stars and formats were emerging. And um, the only monetization and the only sort of reach for those brands and stars and formats was YouTube. And I felt as if there was an incredible opportunity to um, initially leverage these uh, creator brands who had massive audiences and big brands but were exclusively on YouTube and develop multiple lines of business uh, with them. So everything from consumer products to games to live events to all the things you th traditionally think of when you think of a kid's franchise. And then 
you know, to be able to build our business and our brand and our reach sort of off of that momentum to come in behind it with original IP that we create that kind of shares the same DNA and that we can launch and distribute on digital platforms, particularly YouTube, in a similar fashion to kind of grow these franchises and our brand all at the same time. Okay, well, I think it would probably be useful to, to go into a really specific example because, again, sure. not many of us live in this world. So, so tell us about a star on YouTube yeah. and, 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 and what you've done with that star. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, so one of our partners, and we have a very small handful, but one of them is uh, Ryan Toys Review. Ryan Toys Review is a six-year-old boy uh, who creates videos with his parents and now actually a larger production apparatus, but, uh, you know, has channels on YouTube that reach a billion views a month. So 6 million ah. kids a day, I know, 6 million <laughs> kids a day, 20 million a week, and 50 million a month around the world are watching Ryan, uh, you know, 80% of them every day. So um, it's this massive audience. Uh, we engage in a very long-term partnership that covers everything that I described before, exclusive rights for creating you know, new premium long-form content from the brand, licensing and merchandising, live events, books, games, all those things. And so you know, we're a pretty new company. We launched in March of 2017. So in the first year, we were really putting the chess pieces sort of together and, and, and placing them on the board, and we just started marching them forward. So one of the things that we've done most recently with Ryan is we launched a consumer products um, lifestyle brand called Ryan's World. Uh, fortunately for us, uh, Ryan's parents, uh, in their ambitions, have also created other channels with animated characters and puppets. So there's a lot of characters that kind of inhabit Ryan's world that can translate e really easily to consumer products. So we started with a licensing and merchandising, a licensing strategy. So we had five initial licensees uh, that we signed on for things like toys, uh, games, slime, those types of things. And and uh, we were able to strike a deal with Walmart, and we launched at 2,500 stores uh, about four weeks ago, five weeks ago, uh, you know, with a lot of space, you know, four feet of shelf space, um, uh, you know, a big launch for a new company and a brand that, frankly, had just been on YouTube prior to that. Uh, quickly thereafter, Target launched a couple weeks ago, and we'll be in 18,000 retail stores by the end of the year with 250 products, and we're off to a stunning start. Uh, it's hard to you know, give you exact numbers, but I think in our first five months through the holidays, we'll do nine figures in retail sales. And so that, that's a great example of um, uh, just how powerful these new stars and brands on YouTube are, and, and their kids, the kids will come out and they will purchase products. Yeah, so I, let's back up a minute and say so. So clearly, Ryan. Uh, let me put it a different way. Ryan's parents uh, certainly have some ambition. I don't think a six-year-old on his own probably uh, is. You'd thinking, be surprised. <laughs> well, I'm sure Ryan's a pretty unusual guy. I now have to go check him out tonight. I haven't yet looked. Uh, but okay. So, but but still, the question I suppose I would ask is what do you bring to the table that is why 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 can't ryan i suppose i suppose even as i ask that it's a silly question why can't ryan's parents why can't ryan's handlers why can't the people around this youtube brand do this thing and what is it you're doing i mean effectively you're sort of acting as a connector right not really i i would okay. say we're we're it 
it is a little complicated to the extent that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not just connecting. We're, we're sort okay. of conceiving of all these things. We've put together a world-class management team. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that all our partners understand is that while they're very strong at creating audiences on YouTube, all of these other things associated with growing uh, franchises is not something germane to what they do. They mm-hmm. don't. You know, this isn't what their skill set is. And so I've assembled this this kind of world-class team across content and commerce and other areas uh, that are really able to treat uh, it like a like a franchise like we were at Disney. So, for example, mm-hmm. Albie Hecht is my chief content officer. Albie was the president of entertainment at Nickelodeon and developed SpongeBob and Dora and Blues Clues and Rugrats and created the Kids' Choice Awards and is a true living legend in, in, in kids' entertainment. He went on to be the president of Spike and Headline News Network, a real mm-hmm. you know, traditional media veteran who, who understands his way around that world. I, I've got an incredible uh, CRO who comes from a licensing and merchandising background from Hasbro all the way to Genius Brand where he uh, really, really understands that world along with sort of the content sales world and uh, brand and integration and advertising, all these things that we are kind of extending out to this very small group of partners because to us, again, they're, they're franchises. They are, they're um, you know, in a position to really grow uh, you know, across multiple lines of revenue and multiple media sources and multiple outlets. Uh, and we've really put together sort of the, the dream team uh, and resources that are necessary to actually do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm, it's pretty interesting. So I can imagine in, you know, the analogy I'm, I'm thinking of is to celebrities and the way celebrities monetize. And I, I suppose I've always had in my head this notion that they, they have agents. Those agents are essentially looking at inbound uh, uh, opportunities and then sort of sorting, filtering, deciding which ones to pursue, but you're describing a model that is at once more strategic that says, okay, this is the asset. What could we do with this asset? So thinking proactively and strategically, but also in actually, uh, pers- actually de- making investments in developing these opportunities. Did I understand that I, right? I, yeah, I actually think you put that phenomenally well to the extent that, um, I mean, that was part of our pitch to these Mm-hmm. creators was, uh, you know, I often as an entrepreneur, I say opportunism is, can be the real enemy of the entrepreneur. Right. And um, I feel that same way about these creators. So when someone like, you know, Ryan Toys Review gets really big and now he's the, you know, pretty girl at the prom, so to speak, um, and you have all these incoming things, like it's bad business for them to just be like, oh, that's an interesting opportunity. I'll do that. You know, so we really sat with them, we plan out the next, you know, two, three years. And, you know, also it's about building this pocket watch brand as a consumer facing brand of which they are a part of that universe and giving them equity stakes in our company to align our interests. Right. And so that was a big part of what we did, but I think you put it fairly well in terms of the proactive strategic nature of how we approach it. And then, there's also the fact that I think all of the creators ultimately know that, as particularly if they're star-based, that you know there there is a limited period of time to yeah. um, make the 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 most you can, and you know we are all about sort of extending that time and by again sort of associating with 
them with a, a broader, bigger studio media company that is also creating its own content of which they share in through their equity, that they're part of something bigger than themselves. And I think that really appealed to them. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Chris Williams, who's the founder and CEO of Pocket Watch. Uh, Chris, say a little bit. I, I mean, for this to work, it strikes me that you need it, it can't just be a one off. You have to, in a sense, build a set of processes and relationships that allow you to be really good at this so that the next one and the third one and the fourth one are easier and you add a lot of value. Say say what those assets are. What are the processes and resources that you really have that you think you can build and then and then and then use going forward? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I spoke to the, you know, the world-class team here. I think that's actually yeah. number 1 in terms mm -hmm. of the relationships and expertise that we all bring to the table in our various skill sets. I think, frankly, that is absolutely by far number one. It's also capital. We've raised $21 million to date since we launched in March of 2017. Obviously, being able to do that, we have a studio here. We have capabilities like animation. Um, we have uh, you know, real expertise in terms of design of consumer products, how mm -hmm. to launch those things. We have you know, editors who can recontextualize short-form content into long-form content. It's something I'm really proud of, and we'll be making some announcements about this later, but not unlike, let's say, America's Funniest Home Videos or, you know, Tosh 2.0 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and we bring all these assets, uh, you know, to bear on growing these franchises. And, and what was really important to us over uh, the last few months was that we did have something to prove. And to prove that one of these, um, you know, stars, franchises c could have a center of universe on YouTube and still drive the same type of businesses off of that that is traditionally associated with TV and film was really important. And what it did for us in our, our with our relationships, whether it's our book publishing partner, Simon & Schuster, where we're doing a book imprint and, and launching in October, where or our retail partners like Walmart and Target or our licensees, like all of that um, credibility that we've now earned since the launch of Ryan's World allows us, you know, to a certain extent to have some puts that we're now trusted as a source for, you know, curating and, and creating this IP that can go through their systems. And they're a big part of how you make these things successful. So now when we come to them the next time and it's something original that we're launching on YouTube or a different partner, that we have that credibility to really, you know, keep that going. So let's talk a little bit about the about opportunism and in particular opportunism on these YouTube, identifying these YouTube uh, assets and because in a sense, what you've described is a process where you just look for who's getting hundreds of millions of, of, of viewers, and those are your, your targets. But in, in a certain mm. sense, that's opportunistic. And I wondered if you've been tempted or thought about uh, actually going in and trying to create those stars on the original platform. Well, we, we will. Um, I don't know if, if we'll focus as much on stars as we will perhaps on animated characters mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. of that sort. 
Um, but we will. That's absolutely part of the plan. I mean, you know, and our partners know this, and they're very aligned with us because of their very large equity stakes. But, you know, they are the music videos, and we're MTV. They're the classic movies, and we're AMC. They're the licensed library, and we're Netflix. We are absolutely coming in behind them with original content IP and could be original stars as well. Yeah. And and animation, I suppose, has the advantage that they don't get a year older every year. Uh, I, it does make you wonder what Ryan's going to do uh, 10 years from now. Well, a couple of things are, are really interesting about that. And first of all, the lens by which we looked at these creators, you know, I had the benefit of having been the chief audience officer at Maker Studios, where I grew a network of worldwide YouTube creators from 60 to 60,000. So, and that's not what I wanted to do here yeah. in any way, shape or form. But, um, you know, I did have the benefit of, of, of the, um, you know, just daily barrage of data over four and a half years that taught mm -hmm. me a lot about identifying uh, not just just channels that would, you know, were on the right trajectories, but ones that really exhibited certain behaviors that, that were important to us, like longevity was a really mm -hmm. big one. We, mm -hmm. we understand uh, many of these creators have been through a variety of algorithm changes that YouTube has, you know, does fairly often and has come out the other side always, you know, seeing success. That, that gives us a sense of the strength of their brands um, beyond just what the algorithm is serving up. Uh, we, you know, look, we also wanted to work with people that uh, shared our values. That was super important. People that wanted to do right by kids and family. Families that were in this kind of crazy world, but were still treating their kids yeah. like kids. That was yeah. super important to us. So Ryan, as a six-year-old, frankly, biggest, probably biggest kid star in the world, still goes to school. He has swim lessons. He has... <laughs> money set aside for him in a trust. All of these things were extraordinarily important to us as we were choosing them. Um, and, you know, we'll bring on a few more partners, but I think, um, you know, uh, generally speaking, uh, we're looking for, you know, we're not building a network of channels on YouTube. We are, it's a portfolio of IP, and we're very selective about how we put our resources to work against that. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about about financing. You mentioned twenty one million in capital, and and I would, you know, I I live in the in San Francisco Bay Area, and this would not be a sort of traditional venture back kind of deal in this in this part of California. Uh, talk a little bit about about how you put the plan together and pitched investors on the opportunity. Sure. Uh, for one, I was very fortunate in that I've had some you know, success in my career as, as an entrepreneur and, and, and have certainly rewarded investors with returns uh, over my uh, career. Um, that certainly helps when you're going Well, going back to money. the same ones, absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, you know, I think people really understood our vision and they understood this particular vertical of which we were very passionate about both as you know parents and as entrepreneurs um you know i think people really got that fairly immediately especially if it's in your house mm -hmm. like when you have kids and you understand how they consume media this mm -hmm. resonates with you very quickly um but you know we we were again i was pretty fortunate so you know 
basically went out there with a deck and a model and uh, a couple partners and um, was able to raise $6 million A pretty quickly. Um, we raised initially from a fund here in uh, Los Angeles called Third Wave. Third Wave has backed a lot of digital media companies ranging from Machinima to Awesomeness, um, you know, Beautycon, all, all, a lot of companies like that. In fact, others might refer to them as sort of the index fund for online video. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, they uh, became our lead in our Series A. And I really believed in the Series A that I'm, I'm a believer in a chorus of investors, mm-hmm. ones that can add expertise. And when we do something good can be megaphones for um, telling other people. And that, you know, led us to places like Robert Downey Jr., who'd been an investor in um, uh, Maker Studios, or my prior company, uh, John Landau, the producer of Avatar and Titanic, you know, UTA, which is a large talent agency here in town, um, other digital media entrepreneurs like the founder and CEO of a company called Jukin Media, which owns Fail Army, which is a huge, huge um, global brand. And uh, that was super important in terms of the that initial round of $6 million is building that chorus. I mean, we literally, I think, had 40 investors. Wow. Um, and uh, and then in the B, it was the complete opposite. <laughs> so I, I wanted as little investors as possible yeah. um, uh, as we went out to raise $15 million. And look, you know, even for us at that point, we had a tremendous amount of momentum. Um, but you do kiss a lot of frogs. You talk, a lot, talk to a lot of people. I do think traditional Silicon Valley, there are some pockets of interest uh, in this space. Um, uh, you know, we spoke to some phenomenal people at Lightspeed and other venture capital firms based uh, up north. Um, but ultimately, I think for me, the the narrative most resonates with a traditional media company yeah. where they can also extend uh, things that they're doing that create value for us and for them in a very strategic way uh, without controlling us or having any of the issues that might come from owning us. And um, that worked out really well. So we approached uh, Viacom um, at the very top, had opportunity to meet with uh, Bob Backish and Sarah Levy, the COO, and um, they were really compelled by the mission. They are absolutely expanding their digital portfolio, both with acquisitions and investments. And um, it really resonated with them. There was a tremendous amount of chemistry. We were also, as a as a branded studio, developing TV and film. And we already have a deal with Nickelodeon for a series that we're developing and a deal with Paramount for, for a feature film that we're developing. So there was already an inherent sort of chemistry and sort of operational you know, ease there that that made it very easy for them to come in and um, uh, and take the lead, which was really nice. And they took pretty much ninety percent of the round. Um, super interesting. It's, it just underscores that that venture capital, in particular, can be quite regional and can be quite uh, industry specific. And so, there are quite a few. You yeah. know, there are quite a few here in LA that are supporting um, businesses like us. Right. Um, you know, whether it's upfront, um, you know, Mark Schuster is a phenomenal VC here in uh, Los Angeles who, you know, has been great for the area. You've got Graycroft with a huge operation here. That's Alan Patrickoff's venture capital firm where he's, you know, he's based in New York, but a lot of the activity and investments are here in L.A. Um, you know, so there's quite a, 
ecosystem mm-hmm. here in LA, uh, you know, and there's been some in Silicon, there was, it was really interesting actually, because I did meet with a lot of, of, of various types of investors, including a lot of venture capital and some up north. And there was definitely a lot of interest and they are dipping their toe in the water. Um, and, um, you know, while I didn't quite get a term sheet, I imagine if I hadn't gone with Viacom that I, that I wouldn't have been shocked if, mm-hmm. if actually a Silicon Valley uh, firm might have stepped up. Yeah. Well, we just have about a minute, but I did promise our listeners we'd talk a little bit about the brand. So it's pocket.watch. Tell us a little bit about the brand and about the ambition to actually make that brand mean something in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, look, it, 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 it's actually a long story in terms of the, 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 the way it came about, but in a, in a brainstorming session around, you know, what should we name the company very early on? Uh, we used to use a clock metaphor to describe uh, how we approach content. We talk about a second hand, a minute hand, and an hour hand, and, uh, you know, different types of content feeding different types of platforms. Uh, and in this brainstorm session, our um, Corp Strat guy, who was my first hire, uh, basically was like, was like, uh, I was like, what about something connected to the clock? And he's like, what about pocket watch? And we all loved the double meaning mm-hmm. of the fact that you're pulling a device out from your pocket and watching something, right? Mm-hmm. And that that is sort of the activity. And then the dot, you know, it's some of the, we love the dot. And the dot <laughs> really came out of the fact that we couldn't get the damn URL pocketwatch.com, yeah. right? Yeah. And sometimes the best things happen. And my rule on company names and URLs has always been, or at least since I've learned my lessons with some bad ones, uh, has always been like short, easy to spell, you know, right. like exactly. search friendly, like all yeah. these things. And um, we couldn't get the URL. And then someone in a meeting was like, um, you know, what? What? A, there's a new URL end called dot watch the shortest url we could possibly have is pocket pocket dot watch and then we fell in love with the dot so much that we said let's make that part of our brand and our brand identity it 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 immediately connotes something new and something more digitally native and uh chris i'm gonna i really sorry to have to interrupt you leave it right there so we're out of time but that's uh that's a great way to, to wrap it up so thanks so much for joining us I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.